And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So concludes the 13th chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, one of the most quoted and best loved passages of the Christian Bible. Unitarian Universalists speak often of hope and love, and rarely of faith. Neither the mission statement nor the covenant of our church uses the word. Among the seven principles of Unitarian Universalism, faith is not once mentioned. The closest thing to it is a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. If anything, that seems inconsistent with faith. Why would I search for something I've already found? Faith is a difficult word. For some of us, a painful word. As theologian Paul Tillich conceded, faith is one of those words which need healing before they can be used for our healing. The idea of faith is so often used as a weapon, a stick to fend off questions, a bludgeon to punish dissent, a sharp knife to cut us off from each other and divide the world into right and wrong, good and evil, our tribe against their tribe. It's used to bind people in and to cast them out. It happened to me. Maybe it happened to you. Every Sunday morning of my childhood, my family would put on our best clothes, my mother and sister in dresses, my dad and I in jacket and tie, climb into the car and make the short drive to St. Stephen's Episcopal Church in Plainfield, New Jersey. And every Sunday, I would hear our priest recite in his beautiful Welsh accent, quoting the Gospel of John, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. As far as I could make out, perish meant going to hell. Everlasting life meant heaven. So I learned from an early age that if I didn't believe what I was told, I'd go to hell. Now, what precisely did I have to believe? I was supposed to believe in him. Well, obviously it couldn't be enough just to believe that a man named Jesus existed. I, I had to believe Jesus was the only begotten Son of God, the divine made flesh. According to the only religious community I'd ever known, if I didn't believe Jesus was God, I was toast. As I got older and my doubts in Jesus' divinity grew, I had to get out of that church. How could I feel safe? in a community that told me the doubts swirling in my head damned my soul for eternity? How could I stay in a religion that said my salvation depended upon believing something I could not? It made no sense to me when I was 12. And it makes no sense to me now. 
Even if we accept the notion of a God who divides the human race into two groups, one sent to eternal paradise, the other to eternal torment, what kind of God would make that division based upon not what we do with our lives, nor even what's in our hearts, but what we believe or don't believe? What an absurd criterion for salvation. You could be Gandhi or Mother Teresa, but if you don't believe Jesus was God, you're fricasseed forever. <laughs> you could be Adolf Hitler or Idi Amin. Accept Jesus as God and confess your sins, and you're golden. It, may, it makes no sense to me, and I, I, I doubt it made sense to Jesus either. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is greatly concerned with the quality of people's faith but not at all with their theological beliefs. The early Christian community did not elevate or condemn people based on their agreement or disagreement with creedal formulas. They welcomed those who walked in the way Jesus taught. What they offered was not doctrinal certainty, but in Elaine Pagel's words, the presence of a group joined by spiritual power into an extended family. Disagreement about the divinity of Jesus persisted among Christians for centuries after the crucifixion, until the Council of Nicaea in 325, and actually well after that. But an increasingly rigid and fearful institutional church decreed that the fate of one's soul depended upon what the intellect accepted or rejected. In this, they were abetted by the scholars convened by King James I of England to translate the Hebrew and Greek of the Bible into their native tongue. They took the Greek verb pistu and rendered it to believe and nearly every English version of the Bible since has followed their lead. Now, pistu can mean believe, but that is just one of its meanings. Pistu also means to trust, to place one's confidence in. I don't think Jesus was saying, believe that I am God or you will die. Do you think he could have inspired the extraordinary following he gained during his lifetime with a message like that? <laughs> Hi, I'm God. If you don't believe me, go to hell. <laughs> this is not a presentation likely to win friends, let alone apostles, and influence people, let alone change the course of history. I think Jesus was saying, like spiritual teachers of many ages and traditions, trust me. Trust me. Follow me on this difficult path. Give it a try. I know what I'm doing. I have been where you want to go, and I can show you the way. Trust me. The faith Jesus demanded was really a kind of courage, the courage to risk, to hope, to strive against all odds. As the Jesuit priest Anthony DeMello put it, your beliefs give you a lot of security, but faith 
is insecurity. You don't know. You're ready to follow and you're open. You're wide open. You're ready to listen. Faith is different from belief. Belief lives in the head. It looks at reality and sees a true or false question. Faith dwells in the heart as a radical tenderness, an openness to possibility, a conviction in the goodness of creation despite all evidence to the contrary. Faith knows that life is more than conditions and circumstances that change moment by moment. Faith finds the tranquil center within the storm. When we trace the roots of language, we often uncover deeper meanings. The English word faith descends from the Latin fidera, to trust. The word credo originally meant I give my heart. I give my heart. And in Pali, the language of Buddhist scripture, the word for faith is sada, which means to place the heart open. Sada also means hospitality. Sada, writes Buddhist teacher Sharon Salzberg, is the willingness to take the next step, to see the unknown as an adventure, to launch a journey. With faith we move into the unknown, openly meeting whatever the next moment brings. Defining faith as belief and then proclaiming it essential to salvation seemed to me a desperate projection of suppressed doubt. Belief clings, wrote Alan Watts. Faith, let's go. Authentic faith is calm, secure, and admitting of doubt, not as a threat, but as a stimulant. Real faith welcomes questions, challenges, and dissent. It is comfortable with ambiguity. As theologian Dorothy Soel has pointed out, faith without doubt is not stronger, just more ideological. Whatever our faith, we must test it and challenge it. Does my faith narrow my vision? Does it fence in my thinking? Does it make me more rigid, more judgmental, more exclusive? If so, it's not faith, but fear hiding behind a belief system. Authentic faith faces fear as a teacher and moves on. Wayne Teasdale, a lay monk steeped in the Hindu and Christian traditions, wrote that faith is essentially the quality of openness, eagerness, and expectation we see in children and other enlightened souls. It's a basic attitude of trust in the ultimate mystery behind existence. It is a gesture and stand of pure openness. Buddhist Salzburg calls faith the animation of the heart that says, I choose life. I align myself with the potential inherent in life. I give myself over to that potential. 
Such a faith stands squarely in the best tradition of Unitarian Universalism. It's time we stopped being afraid of faith and reclaim it on our terms as people of faith. None of us knows what the future holds. Economic recovery or global collapse. Ecological healing or mass extinction. Personal vitality or incurable disease. Happiness or heartbreak. Maybe all of them. These are uncertain and unnerving times. We will need faith in the days and decades to come. The opposite of faith, Salzburg says, is not doubt, but despair. Despair is a luxury none of us can afford. We'll need a faith at once stronger and suppler than mere belief. We'll need a faith that heals rather than wounds. A faith that forgives rather than condemns. A faith that embraces rather than excludes. A faith that opens our hearts and minds to greater possibility. We'll need the faith of a Nelson Mandela, who emerged from 27 years in prison to become president of South Africa. His secret, keeping one's head pointed to the sun, one's feet moving forward. We'll need the faith of an Aung San Suu Kyi, leader of the Burmese democracy movement, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, who has spent more than 13 of the last 19 years under house arrest. There is darkness in the world, she says, but it is merely an absence of light. All the darkness in the world cannot dispel even the smallest candle flame. We need only to accustom ourselves to the dim vision, and then the blessing of light will grow. We'll need the faith of a Teresa of Avila, the 16th century Spanish Carmelite, who used to pray, let nothing upset you. Let nothing frighten you. Everything, everything is changing. Only God is changeless. Patience attains the goal. We'll need the faith of an Oscar Wilde, the brilliant English playwright and satirist who served two years hard labor for the crime of being gay. All of us are in the gutter, Wilde reflected, but some of us are looking at the stars. Lying on his deathbed, Wilde reported to a visitor, my wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. One or the other of us has got to go. <laughs> we'll need the faith of a Julian of Norwich, the medieval English anchoress who declared, all will be well. And all will be well. And all manner of things will be well. 
Will he the faith of a Laded, the 14th century mystic of Kashmir, known by both Hindus and Muslims as Lala? She wrote, at the end of a crazy moon night, the love of God arose. I said, it's me, Lala. We'll need the faith of a Levi Romero, the New Mexican poet who writes, it's the 14th of May. Already the days for planting are just about over. Winter has followed spring into this season with afternoon showers of rain, hail, and cold weather receding into promises of warm days that come for short spells and then disappear behind a cloak of dark clouds and damp weather. The apricots bloomed early, but March also fell prey to frost, and so this year the tree in the backyard bears no fruit. It is that way sometimes. It is that way. In what we have been told, one year yes, one year no. It comes down to that, a simple understanding of life's give and take, and we in our lives move forward simply accepting and giving as the earth gives and rejecting and taking as the earth takes because we know nothing else. There's nothing else to know. It comes down to that. Un año si, un año no. And love, too, comes in that similar way and it remains, it remains in that way when it does, like that. So do not be fearful or impatient. Learn how to sway your life accordingly. You will understand what it means, the sound of a horse neighing in the moonlight when your season is come. Love. Love, you will know. You will know. You will know. Amen. And blessed be.